0: Welcome to the Earth Keepers Podcast. This podcast is for people who seek new and better ways to love and care for the Earth. It's a podcast for anyone who is deeply concerned about the harm being done to the environment on a local and global level. It's a podcast that builds community and connection between people of like heart and mind, people who believe that Earth Care should be integrated into every aspect of life, and for many in the Earth Keepers community that includes our spiritual lives. My name is Forrest Inslee, and in this episode, we'll talk with Abigail Ferson and Liesl Stewart, two women in South Africa who gathered together a small community of people in order to purchase food in bulk directly from local farmers. From that initial small, alternative food network, the Food Club movement was born. And now there are many such groups throughout the country communities of people seeking a more socially just and ecologically connected relationship to their food, to the land and to the farmers who care for the land. While they never set out to create a movement in South Africa, they model the principle that great things can come from simply taking small steps to meet the needs in front of you. Welcome, friends, to the Earth Keepers podcast. Well, welcome, Abby and Lisa. Perhaps you could orient our listeners to who you are and what you do day to day. Abby, let's start with you.
1: Hi. Hi, I'm Abby. My full name is Abigail, but many of my friends and family know me as Abby. I um, live in Cape Town, South Africa, and I've lived here most of my life. I have three little girls. Actually, one is nearly a teenager, so I shouldn't say little girl anymore. Three girls, married to Mike. My, my day-to-day, I am a homeschool educator, so I'm homeschooling my girls. So That occupies me in the day. run a food club once a month. That occupies some of my time during the evenings in preparing for that or on an actual day when that happens. And then I love crocheting and dancing. I do a bit of flamenco dancing. That's me.
0: Mm -hmm. (laughs) Wonderful. Lisa, how about you?
2: I am Liesel Stewart, and I am originally from the U.S., but I moved to South Africa 28 years ago because of a South African man that caught my fancy. Craig is my husband now. I married him within a year of arriving in the country, and I've been here since. And I arrived in South Africa one month before the first democratic elections in 1994. I am a mother of teenager young adults, the youngest 17, the oldest is 22, three children. And I host my own buying club of 35 member households that buy food together. And then I've just in this past year started contract writing for a small organization in the U.S. called Creature Kind that does amazing, important work around farmed animals within church and theology.
0: So, just to clarify some of the terms we'll probably use in our conversation, I wonder if you could define what an alternative food network is, because that's kind of our broader context that we're talking within.
2: If we refer to the food system. We're talking about the activities and the people and the institutions that are involved in the growing, the processing, distributing, the acquiring, like the buying or selling of food, the consumption and the disposal of food. And we have a system right now that's pushing towards big players, like big companies involved with food. AFNs or alternative food networks tend to look at the chains of the supply chain for food moving from production to when we eat it. And they're looking at taking out a lot of the links in between and making the movement of food much more direct from production to those of us eating our food. Making distribution of food as face-to-face as possible between the producers and the consumers of food. Getting rid of all the intermediaries or as many as possible.
0: Sure. Abby, I wonder if you could tell me about what you see as the need for an alternative? Like, what's the point? What are you guys trying to solve for?
1: I think one of the things that I know Liesl and I have spoken about a lot in the past is is kind of when you're sitting around your table, having a meal with your family, to be able to know a bit more of the story of what you're going to enjoy with your friends or your family, or even when you're having a meal on your own. And like Liesl said, it's about bridging that gap between those that are producing or farming and those of us who get to consume food. That is probably one of the key needs is really, I suppose, establishing relationships so that we understand more of, of what we get to enjoy at a table and know a bit more of its story. I don't know, Liesl, if there's any other needs that you think, but I think that was probably one of the key things. If I may use an example, a few years ago, We were in relationship and buying from a chicken farmer on the southern coast of South Africa, and he had experienced quite extreme cold in a particular week. And he informed us ahead of an order that he's not going to be able to supply us because he's lost 150 chicks. I think for me, that is an example of, you know, it didn't affect us immediately, but a month's time later... When we tried to order, he said, unfortunately, I can't supply you with chicken this week. So I think one of the key things that gets established through Solidarity Purchase Group's alternative food networks is that you then have a closer communication with the producer or supplier that I could then say to the club members, unfortunately, this month, remember what happened four weeks ago? Well, we can't supply that particular food item.
0: I like the word you used earlier. You said the story of food. Because we're often at least in the quote unquote modern food production system, we're so detached we just yeah assume that we know where it comes from, and we really don't you know, and I think that there are people involved as well, like you know that farmer personally, and that just is pretty rare, I think, for people to have that sort of connection
2: that's one of the things people say is alternative food networks are a response to food being placeless and food being nameless. So food losing its cultural rooting, food moving around the world and being faceless. Like you don't know who is behind the food, like Abby's saying the story of the food. So actually alternative food networks they're alternative because there are dominant food systems moving across countries and regions moving across the globe. And they are very strong. They have a lot of power. They are more and more self-regulated and less regulated by the state. So they're gaining more and more power. And people have been waking up to that and seeing that. And then they look at food and it's lost even its foodness. Like, what am I eating here? It's produced in a factory. But how long ago was it wheat? What's all the stuff that's been added? It tastes Good, maybe it feels good going into my mouth, but is it really food? Like, it's like, you know, what is it? And I think people are wanting to come back to food that has quality. It's not processed, it's fresher, it's closer to what it was at the start when it was grown. And then people are relocalizing their food. They're wanting it to come from closer to where they're eating it. People are wanting that. And I think it's a good thing for us to be wanting. Maybe we're coming back to food within a cultural context. People are. Rediscovering, and there's a renaissance of that, I think, happening, which I think is important and it's good. Um, And then people, I think, are joining alternative food networks because they don't want to just say, I've been given this role, I've been assigned this role from capitalism or in the world today as a consumer. And that is my most important job is to be a consumer. And people are saying, I want to not be passive in this. I actually want to be active in the food that I'm eating. Even if I'm not growing it myself, I actually want to be moving towards the people that are producing it and have a more active role in how it comes to me. So I think people are involved. There's quite a number of different kinds of food networks that are alternative to the mainstream system. And then I think people want trust now. They want to trust the food. There's a lot of marketing out there. There's a lot of money behind advertising and marketing and. People are no longer trusting that. I think it's good for us to wake up and say, actually, we've been at the mercy of all this money put into advertising, and we actually need to start looking behind the smoke and saying what's going on behind the production of our food.
0: You know, it strikes me that idea of restoring food kind of works both ways. On the one hand, we want to learn the story of our food, but that's also a counter to the false story of food. Because what you're talking about with the marketers, with the profit margin driving everything, they won't necessarily tell you the real story of the food. And so we're actually believing something that's false. So it does sound like in some ways your work is about truth telling about food. Would you agree?
2: Yeah. Yes. Yeah. We're trying to get to the truth, right? Yeah. (laughs) And share it. Yeah. It's hard. Once we started asking questions, Abby, huh? For sure. (laughs) Transparency
1: is a big challenge. I think over the years have come to learn, especially for farmers, they work so hard. They really do. And it's not a hugely profitable industry to be in. And so, yeah, when you start asking questions, you really have to be well-schooled in asking good questions so that you can continue a conversation with a producer or farmer so that they don't feel threatened and that you can get the truth. Yeah,
2: I I don't know if Liesl, (laughs) you may have some examples. I think farmers, you have to look at your context. I think it's happening globally that there's a big push for farms to go big or go home, to scale up or not make it. And I think small farmers that we deal with, it's their livelihoods are vulnerable. So we build relationships over time and try and ask questions as we go and not be threatening. Yeah. We try hard to say we're in this with you and we have a lot of grace. There's a lot of grace in this and this isn't a perfect food system. We're not looking for perfection We would like to just be able to collaborate with you. So us working with farmers and farmers working with us.
1: Yeah. And just to add to what is saying is that I think one question in particular that I think over the years we've had to find ways of asking it so that you get the information you're looking for. I know Jesse, who Liesl mentioned earlier and others are doing a lot more active research at the moment than what I am, but I know... In the years that I was doing it more actively, asking questions like sustainability around your farming practices, are you registered as organic or are you following organic principles like farmers who aren't necessarily registered or certified as organic may still be practicing organic principles, but it's quite a financial undertaking to certify yourself, which many farmers can't pursue And so I think in the early days, we learned that we needed to ask open-ended questions so that you could really understand well how a farmer or producer was producing their goods or their produce and not stick exclusively to terminology like organic. And I think regenerative is a word that is being used a lot more now, but yeah, I'm thinking 10, 15 years ago.
0: Well, speaking of story, I'd really like to hear how each of your stories intersects with the story of the Good Food Club that you both are working to build.
2: I remember I went to, they call them here farm stalls, like a little farm stall shop that I used to go to to pick up some ethically grown vegetables that I would order online. And I wanted organic food at that point for my kids. And I wanted it as cheaply as I could get it. Um, so I'd go to this place and pick up my order every week. And I would look at this cheese that they were selling in the shop. I would buy little tiny wedges. And I finally went to the woman that owned the shop. And she was just so great. Because I, I said, I would like to start buying this cheese in bigger quantity. But I would Love to buy like a whole head of cheese and pay a cheaper per kilogram rate if I could do that with you. And then she said, Lisa, don't buy from me then rather go to the person I buy from. So she was buying from an intermediary who I went to. I did one order from them where I ordered cheese and I got a few other people to order. And I think, Abby, you were part of that. Both of us have really hazy memories about the earliest days. And then I thought, well, if it was cheaper to buy from the intermediary, maybe it's going to be even cheaper to go directly to the farmer. So I called the farmer from the sticker on one of the heads of cheese and talked to him and just asked him if he'd be willing to sell to a small group of us and how much do we need to buy for him to be willing to sell to us and for him to deliver to us. And so that started with the cheese. And then at the same time, Abby and I, one of us started buying olive oil and I think Pesto was in there too, Abby. It was, yeah. <laughs> so that starting to buy stuff together. And then it was kind of like, oh, well, if this is working, then maybe what's the next thing that we want to look at? And that set me off on a whole different course in my life. I've never gone back to the formal workforce. I see this as a job that I've been doing all these years, but it, it hasn't been a formal job until I have started this writing contract. But it's totally changed the way I view the world. It's transformed my faith, I believe. My values have been reworked completely. My family's values have been reworked. The way we live has changed because so much of our life centers around food that we live very differently. It's affected everything about my life.
0: I want to get to your story, Abby. But Lisa, you've raised some really interesting points here. And you know, we've talked about how alternative food networks help us to get closer to the source of the food, help us to understand the story of food. But you're bringing up a really interesting benefit In order for you to get cheaper prices, I'm guessing, that's why you're buying in bulk. That's part of it. So this is actually not something that ends up being more expensive, but rather less expensive for people to belong to?
2: It can be, depending on what we're buying. Like meat is just always going to be expensive. But yeah, we definitely are buying in bulk to try and access better prices. We've come to realize that buying in bulk also offers very good support to our suppliers. We started off wanting a better deal for ourselves. Along the way, we realized how important it is to our suppliers that they're getting these big orders from us once a month and they can rely on that. So, yeah, it depends. We are trying to buy quality food, so we're not going for mass produced stuff that's produced at such scale that it's going to be cheaper than something we're buying from some of the small producers, small retailers.
0: So the farmers can rely on... A good order on a regular basis do they make more money
1: i think the one thing that is different for farmers when they're dealing with farm um, with food clubs is that they're not waiting to get paid so generally when they're dealing with bigger retailers they would be on a 30 or 60 day payment plan or their stock is just sitting on the shelf as consignment until it gets sold so I think definitely there is a benefit for producers and suppliers and farmers working together with a food club because it's a reliable cycle that they can predict. And there certainly is, I'm sure I can say this confidently, amongst all the food clubs that are within the networks that we're familiar with would pay within seven days. So I think that certainly is a benefit. And I, I would I would hope and imagine that many farmers appreciate. Hey, Liesel?
2: Yeah. And the other thing is We call it a relationship of regard, that there's a lot of respect in the relationship. So we do let the farmers dictate prices to us. I have come back sometimes to suppliers, especially if a price increase comes and I say, ah, I'm worried about how much more this is and how it's going to affect your orders. But farmers at the mercy of the supermarkets do not get to set prices and supermarkets dictate everything. But with us, they have this relationship of regard or respect. Where they can talk to us about their prices and we can go back and forth. I mean, and they can tell if they don't get orders, that kind of communicates for itself. But when you're asking, is it financially beneficial for them? It is because we might be getting wholesale prices, but it's also prices that they are setting for us.
0: So, Abby, coming back to the story idea, how did your story intersect with the story of good food clubs?
1: Yes. Yeah, so, I think around 2006, 2007, I think my journey was I really wanted to know more about the story of what I was buying and eating for myself. And I think I had one child at that point. And I started just reading food labels. I paid attention to where it was coming from, what was in it, if it was in a jar and processed in any way. And my kids still tease me to this day on occasions when they want Vienna's is that called something different elsewhere in the world I don't know I guess hot, hot dogs. dogs yeah <laughs> hot <laughs> so dogs. processed sausage yeah yeah And on those occasions when it happens very rarely, (laughs) I was like, mom, don't read the label. (laughs) You're not going to buy it. (laughs) So they know that about me. (laughs) And around the same time, Liesl and I started chatting. And I love what you said before, Liesl. We've said this in other conversations before, that food is so culturally entrenched, the kinds of food that we eat. I mean, Liesl and I joke about ordering cheese together, but that wouldn't be the norm for every South African. But Liesl and I, obviously we were crossing paths because we've got mutual friends and Craig and I work together. And in conversation, I think we discovered that we had a mutual love for good food and wanted to get it at a good price. (laughs) I think that's always the hard part. I think for everybody with food, just being a basic human need that we all need to have food to survive and water. And so just to acknowledge the privilege that Liesl and I and those that are in our food club to a certain measure have financial resources in, to be able to do that. But not everybody has the, the privilege to choose what they eat. And then that's hard because every market day, I think Liesl would relate to this, is that we have real gratitude for what we receive and what we get to share within our food club. But being so conscious in the South African context that we live, that the vast majority of the population don't have freedom to choose what they can eat. And that's a sobering thought that I know Diesel and I and others live with constantly.
2: It's actually been something Abby and I have wrestled with quite a lot. Uh, How important is what we're doing when half of this country, and I think it's worse under COVID now, under the economic repercussions of lockdowns and stuff like that. But when half this country can't participate in the good food clubs as we run them, that's very hard to justify. I don't know, I've struggled a lot with it. Abby has too. But on the other hand, I have made peace that we're part of this whole alternative food geography. And there's other players, there's other modes of sourcing food out there than just us. We're playing our small part. And it's actually very important for this country's food system that the small retailers and producers are kept alive right now because there is such a big push for farmers to get bigger and corporatize and intensify. You know, all the stuff that we do not want in this country, it puts wealth into the hands of fewer and fewer people. And it's really important that the small producers are kept viable and kept alive. And that's the role that we're playing. So even though somebody that I interact with in my day-to-day that would not be able to afford to be in the food club, it's actually good for everybody in the country that if people are spending money, that we are keeping these people alive. So I do believe that. I believe that wholeheartedly. I just know Abby and I are constantly agitating for, okay, what next? How do we get involved with more standing and working so that more people have access to better food? Cause that's what this
0: country needs. Well, isn't that really the plight of many of us who want to be world changers, that we want to make you know changes for the common good? I think we have to sort the outcomes and be careful not to put on ourselves the burden of having to meet every need, right? I mean, you can acknowledge what your work with Good Food Club is doing in terms of justice issues, in terms of Economic justice. And I totally understand, though, that you would come up against this and kind of be perplexed by it. So I want to affirm what you're doing. You know, I love the fact that you guys are making changes. You can see the changes you're making for people. But when you think about this, somehow making your work be more beneficial to the poor, say, I'm wondering what have some of the ideas been that have come up? You know, what are the possibilities that have at least been entertained as directions you could go?
1: I mean, that question takes me back to a conversation with some friends and friends of friends that Liesl and I had a couple of months ago. And one of the gentlemen, he farms in Kailicha, And he was telling us about a friend of his that lives in another more peri-urban. Is that the word? Uh, Philippi, Liesl, would that be?
2: Uh, Yeah, that would be peri-urban. And Kailicha is one of the biggest townships. In In Cape Cape Town, Town, yeah.
1: And so he has a friend who farms in another part of the city, in Philippi. And he was just saying that this farmer has been dreaming about ways for him to be able to sell his produce, his vegetables and food that he grows at a bit of a premium to people who are better financially resourced so that he can sell his produce to people who live more locally to where he farms at a much cheaper price than he would usually do. But that would mean that that people who have financial resources will end up paying more than they would usually pay for their vegetables, as an example. But it does free others up to have access to fresh produce. I feel like that's an unfinished conversation, but it, it challenged me.
0: Yeah, but I think that at least you're asking the questions, right? At least yeah. you're saying, what else can we do? Where else could we go? How else could we do good in this country? And so I think that's a good place to be.
2: I'm talking to other people now. I can't go running into this because I can't mess around with people. Like people are hungry right now in South Africa. This is a food insecure country. We have enough food nationally, but we are a food insecure country. And it's gotten worse since 2020. But I think South Africa has a strong tradition of food collectives that are very different than the way we work. They're called Stockfels. One example I think there's a lot that could be done. I don't think I'm a white person originally from the U S married to a white South African. I don't think it's for me to march in to a community and start something, but I am looking for the place or places to be involved that I can come alongside, maybe dragging Abby with me, or maybe she's going to drag me with her, <laughs> but I'm actively looking at that right now. Now that I finished my master's and I'm asking God, where is it going to be? Because I Find it daunting to look at the levels of hunger in this country. I am so distressed by what we're facing. and like people are hungry today, they're going to be hungry tomorrow, they 're going to be hungry next week, next month, next year. Like food is just such an ongoing need, and it is just terrible what we're facing here. We need big answers, and I do believe it's going to be in collectives. it's not going to be. It's going to be a lot of different initiatives, a lot of different ways. But I do think they need to be alternative to the supermarket system, because the supermarkets are only going to keep bending to their shareholders, their profits, you know, the bottom line at the end of the day, they're not going to solve the hunger crisis of this country. It's going to have to be through alternatives. And I do believe that's something to be moving towards God, asking, like, how How do we do this? And there's good people. There's really good thinkers. There's good people from all demographics of this country that are putting their heads to stuff. So I think there's places that we can start trying to collaborate.
0: We've been talking to Liesl Stewart and Abigail Ferson of the Food Club Network in South Africa. It's interesting to note that we were introduced to Liesl and Abby by another podcast guest, Erica Alvarez of Casa Adobe in Costa Rica. This sort of global networking reflects one of the primary values of the Earth Keepers podcast, that listening to a diversity of global cultural perspectives helps us to move beyond our own limited points of view. Listening to difference also moves us to look at our relationship to creation in new ways and inspires us to consider innovative approaches to earth care. So, if you know someone somewhere in the world that you would like to listen to on this podcast, please reach out and make the recommendation You can do that with a voice message on the podcast website or by sending an email to earthkeepers at circlewood.online. Now let's return to our conversation with Abby and Lisa. I'm really intrigued by what you said about the collective approach being maybe characteristic of culture in South Africa. And I'd like to know more about that. And here's why. I mean, one of the functions of this podcast is to really seek after lessons to be learned that aren't being learned in our own context. We really believe that in the diversity of perspectives, we're going to find answers that we can adapt or adjust and make our own. But unless we start listening to other people, other cultures, other places, we don't get those possibilities. So, I'm wondering, Abby, if you could comment more about that. Do you agree that, in fact, the collective approach, there's something about South Africa that makes that more possible? That it's at really a strength that the country could offer to the rest of the world in terms of an example?
1: Hmm. <laughs> I think having lived through the last two years is certainly um, exposed and, and given rise to opportunities for people to collaborate and work together. The biggest challenge for many South Africans who are in the lower earning income brackets is that you really are living from your pocket to your plate. There is no room to save. There's no room to make provision for things going wrong. And so I think the historical richness of people participating in something like a stock it it's just people will each month pull their money. Generally, this happens in communities of lower income brackets where you give a certain amount each month and then at the end of the year, people get the money or a certain month within the year, you get your money in January or March or August. So you're pooling your money for the full 12 months and then each month, either you know someone is delegated as the recipient or at the end of the year, the money is spread amongst the 10 people were part of the Stockwell. And I think that kind of collaboration is historically what people have been doing for decades. And so there definitely is an effort among South Africans to be able to do things together to make things possible. I know people have done that with food hampers in the past. And, and so I think what Liesel and I often face is this question, is that we know that the model as we use it is not replicable in every community in South Africa. And so we're certainly going to have to, yeah, I suppose get out years and our feet closer to the very many diverse communities in South Africa to be able to hear from people what they believe could be some of the solutions going forward to kind of facilitating and enabling alternative food networks so that, yeah, people can make better choices or be empowered to make choices in a collective
2: way. I think stockpiles are so clever because people wouldn't have financial access on their own to buy the amount of food that they would buy at once if they hadn't banded together with other groups. I've read up quite a bit on them and it's actually people then saying that we're going to leverage, you know, we're going to put our money together and, and make it possible for each one of us to have our month of being able to buy in bulk or buy special foods for special occasions. South Africans know how to party and they know how to celebrate and stuff. So there's special occasions people really want to save up for. And then, unfortunately, there are funerals that people have to save up for. There's too many funerals. And then there's not within the white communities. The white, westernized communities are still very individualistic. But it seems like, to me, for the rest of the country, it's that people do these things communally. They celebrate life and they acknowledge death communally. And there's always food involved.
0: Yeah. Well, I think that's what makes me intrigued to see what's going to happen in terms of the things that will be incubated in the way of collaborative sort of solidarity efforts, people pooling their resources together and cooperating. Because I don't think those things grow up so easily in an individualistic context, right? So I'll be so intrigued to learn more about, did you call it Stockfeld? Stockfeld. Okay. Yeah. I'll definitely look that up.
2: That's S-T-O-K-V-E-L.
0: Well, I would imagine that speaking of collectivism and the relational nature of, of South African cultures, that there is an element of community that goes on in the good food club that you run. Is it about relationship in any sense, or is it purely about the end results, the <laughs> benefits?
1: I oh, I can't answer that question without remembering the last two years. <laughs> oh, it's been hard. <laughs> it's robbed us of the relational aspect, which it's been so critical and so much a part of what Good Food Club was for that first decade and then we hit lockdown everything changed (laughs) but what we started calling market days kind of became traditionally known as the hangout, catch up, collect my food just by the way (laughs) but was very much about seeing friends you haven't seen for a few weeks but it really did become a hub of community where as we received the food and prepared for distribution, where before households would pick up their food, it was a gathering of volunteers. And I think that was one of the values that we really held dear to for a very long time.
2: I've learned that it's really good to have a place that people come together on a regular basis. And for us that has been the monthly market day. We're going to make it a market atmosphere so that people will come and collect their food, but we'll also have food out. We'll make it warm and inviting and hospitable and also a chance for people to maybe interact with somebody who wants to supply us they could be there with their food and people could come and test and taste and talk to people that would potentially supply us and so so it worked we started these market days
0: you keep saying food clubs plural and i think probably we need to clarify that there are more than one how many food clubs are there and did you start the food clubs or how does that work
2: So out of our group, the second one started and then others started. And then so eventually 12 groups, I think, started, Abby, and we were kind of meeting together as a network. But then one of those people, she started one of these food clubs and she is a dynamo. I don't know how she does it. And she's the one who's passionate about regenerative farming and environmental concerns and stuff. And she had an app developed for hosting a club, the back end and, you know, like uh, loading up all the suppliers. And then she is mentoring other groups to start. Wouldn't you say, Abby, because you're now on her system? I am. I am part of her hub. Yeah, I think there are about 20 clubs now. yeah. Yeah, 20. And they're not just in Cape Town, they're around the country. Other people come into the constellation and they start doing amazing things. So Jessie, so Jessica Merton is her name. She started something called Food Hub, which is it's food clubs and it's centered around market days. And she's just amazing. So she has been responsible for the proliferation yeah. of these clubs. And, and there's just so much more room for more clubs.
0: You have to look at that and just say, wow, <laughs> I mean, that's incredible. I, I mean, really, it's ultimately down to the two of you that started this thing it's really a movement it sounds like if there are that many groups how does that feel
1: (laughs) trying to uh
0: silence it's
1: sometimes hard to receive a compliment but Uh. um i think i don't know if we've started a movement but i think we've opened up the conversation about a movement that has been growing I think sometimes when you have these values that you uphold and things you believe and you feel like it's impossible, but then somehow you hear about someone else doing what you would love to do. And I feel more like it's a a plant budding with flowers, (laughs) that there are these like-minded people around our country and around the world that share similar values and just haven't known how to start it and then you start hearing of others who have done it and then suddenly it feels possible. And so then you take the first step and then like still said, I think someone like Jess who's established this hub online that just makes it so much simpler
2: to kind of put it into action. But yeah, I suppose pioneers Some of the other people in the group, like we we would meet together as a network. We all had to share information. There's so much to learn about the food system and you will never stop learning. And it's overwhelming. Actually, we started realizing the more we knew, the more we didn't know. We were constantly talking about values. Like we had to make decisions weighing up what's more important here. You're just weighing up local versus maybe outside of South Africa, but it's Southern Africa versus organic versus they're trying to farm without pesticides. They might use them. We were constantly talking about that kind of stuff. And so we started calling it a values matrix and that we had this whole list of values that you'd be weighing up against each other. And it was pretty fluid for us. But what's happened now is having Jessica come in with the Food Hub, is she's actually been codifying that, which is what Abby and I always wanted to do. We just, we never got to it. She's actually marking stuff down, nailing it down, like treatment of animals, the environment. There's other areas, payment of workers.
1: I think one of the things, when you talk about a movement of people, and I think one of the most wonderful things is that all of us have energy for different things at different times, or energy for the same thing, but at different times. And I think I've definitely been less active around doing research about suppliers and farmers, and it's been so fun to watch other food club hosts who've just been in for a few years and have got so much energy for things that I remember having lots of energy to research years ago. And so I think that's the gift about participating in this arena or community of people looking and seeking ways to grow and build alternative food networks, that there's always someone that's got energy for an important issue. As this movement of clubs has grown, the load feels lighter because there's more of us actively seeking to do research or learn or share and and that kind of thing.
0: Well, I might suggest that perhaps one of the reasons this has grown so much and become a movement is because of the way you started things and because of these values that you're talking about, that you're not holding fast to you know, a set of criteria that determines whether people are in or out. You're not trying to maintain control that every food club has to look a certain way. I mean, you're holding things very loosely and giving people permission to live into their strengths, to live into their places, to do whatever it is that they can do best within this matrix of values of the food club. So I think it's brilliant. I mean, it's chaotic too, right? (laughs) I mean, when you don't have those strictures in place, well, sometimes you don't know what you're going to end up with. But what I love about this is that it has clearly triggered, right? It's clearly touched the need that people have. And I'll just go so far as to say that I have a lot of hope that if we can somehow I'm seeing the Earth Keepers podcast give access to people to some of the ideas and models that you have created. I wouldn't be surprised at all that other places in the world would take hold of this model. I mean, have you heard of people taking it outside of the boundaries of the country yet?
2: There are similar groups, other places. Like when I did my research, I think we're similar. I wrote up in my thesis, these groups in Italy called solidarity purchase groups We're different than them. But we're similar to them in, in that we are not just about getting the cheapest food anymore. We are trying to change the food system. And we're groups of people. I think if you talk about the chaos, but the loose handedness of it, I think there are places in Europe I've read about. There are places in the U.S. and Canada that groups are going and they, I think they have developed in similar ways. We have been responsive to our context here and and the way we've developed has worked for us. And I think what's interesting about through the years, like even recently, a woman has moved into my neighborhood. She's just down the street from me, and um, she contacted me because she's been part of another food club in another part of the city. And she said, "I'm here now, and I would really like to start a food club, but I'm just afraid that you will find me competitive, <laughs> or like that maybe you don't want one in the neighborhood." I think I think Abby and I have said from the start, anytime people come to us is. To start one, it's just like there's no competition here. Like, the more, the better. The more people buying off the supermarket system, the better. There's just no competition. And we all have different social networks that we can pull from and pull people in. So I was like, if you start one a block away from me, more power to you. You know, I just would want to make sure you know why you're starting it. I think that's the biggest question for me with people is know why you're starting it. You're not going to get wealthy. I think the power is in the fact there's a bunch of small groups. Nobody's becoming massive. Then you know, then you become a food retailer or something. I think the power is it's a lot of smaller groups that stay relational and there's social cohesion, there's trust between people.
0: So one of the themes that this podcast is interested in exploring is the connection between environmental justice or earth care and spirituality, our spiritual practices. I'm wondering for the two of you, is there an intersection there? between the work you do and maybe your deeper values framework?
1: I think I do hold a sense of responsibility that is rooted in my faith. I think I live by, yeah, besides just really holding to that sense of gratitude for what I get to have access to through the Food Network and the food club supplier groups. I always have this conversation with my kids often when we remember to acknowledge it, that we're so grateful for all the people that participated in producing what we get to enjoy at our table. And so being able to give thanks to God for that, but also give thanks. And sometimes we get to do that face to face when food gets delivered. We get to express our appreciation to the person who delivers it. And sometimes I know with both Lisa and I, we, order from a farm, and the person who drives and delivers is also actively involved in farming, so we get to express our appreciation to him. I suppose it's practical theology, it's like the outworkings of the gratitude and thanksgiving that I have towards God, but also for the people that participated in the chain of events that led to me appreciating and receiving the food that I get through the food club. So yeah, I think that's something I try and instill in my kids is that we can express our thanks to God, but also to the people who participate in the production of what we receive through our food club. And so it's always a question in our family. It's how can we share what we have? That's constantly a question that my husband and I and my kids talk about is we have what we need, but how can we share what we have? Financially, or in the things that we have um, or own. Yeah.
2: I think when I became a Christian, I was about 17 years old, and I would have called myself evangelical, conservative, probably even fundamentalist, actually. And it's such a disembodied faith. There was for me, it took me years to come into my body as a Christian, to say that God's not only interested in my soul. And I think that I really had to actively divest myself of a, a theology that was like, it's all gonna burn in the end, it doesn't matter. It's all gonna burn. And actually enter the full story of God, creator God, that says, I created all this, all you, and you being every microorganism, you being every human creature, every animal creature, that God created all this and said, this is very good. Like you can just hear the joy and the delight in our creation stories that we can read in our sacred text. There is a way to respect creation, God's creation, that I am supposed to be living with great care and respect for, and it's all tied up together. It's people, it's the earth, it's the soil, it's Animals. It's what I'm paying somebody. Yeah, it's just it's all connected. And I find like food is in the middle of that. So I think I stepped into a much wider story than I realized. That's God's story, and I'm trying to learn the values. I'm trying to learn God's ways.
0: We've been in conversation with Abigail Ferson and Lisa Stewart, founders of the Food Club Movement in South Africa. If you want to know more about their work and perhaps to get inspiration for starting your own alternative food network, go to this episode's show notes on the podcast website. If you appreciate this podcast and want to help us expand its global reach, please show your support by subscribing. Just go to whatever platform you listen to podcasts on, hit the subscribe or follow button for the Earth Keepers podcast. I'm Forrest Ginsley, your podcast host. Our executive producer is James Amadon. Our producer is Dave Ulfers. Timothy Connor is our editor, and Forrest Reed is the creator of our original music. Our research assistant is Rochelle Nordman, and Jesselyn Gentry is our social media director. Thank you, friends, for listening, and please join us for our next conversation on the Earthkeepers podcast.